invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Uh, this has been part of what we've been going through at Reedville for the last several weeks uh, leading up to the Christmas holiday uh, for in 1 John. And uh, just as a... Because I've, we've not been going through it together, one of the things that I want you to know just by way of context and sort of giving us the broader understanding of what John is going to do, you can almost compare it in, in this way to how, first of all, he writes John, and then second of all, how he writes First John, in that while John is more focused, and his gospel is more focused on teaching us about Christ and teaching us about Christ in whom we have first believed, First John is going to teach us more about how do we live the Christian life and how do we know that we believe. How is it that we know we have faith in the Lord Jesus? So that then puts it in a broader perspective that First John is about assurance. John is wanting Christian believers that they have assurance. And, and what is that assurance about? You can see it actually in First John chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And one of the things that John does in light of that to remind them of that is gives them a series of tests of, of, of obedience to God's commands, love for uh, the brethren. And uh, you know, so there's a social test, a moral test, and an obedience test in, in that way as well. And the passage that we have here tonight uh, will be reading from verse 1 to verse 12 with a particular focus on verses 7 to 12. Uh, the thing about verses 7 to 12 of 1 John 4 is that it's the third time that John has dealt with the subject of love, that social test that I mentioned. This is the third time he's dealt with it, and in large part because, uh, I would say, it's probably because it's one of the things that Christians struggle most with, loving one another and uh, certainly loving the Lord our God as our God. And so that really puts it into perspective then as far as the whole flow of it as he's trying to remind us of why it is that we believe and to whom we may have assurance. And in this passage, he doesn't just leave us to say um, that we are to love, but he tells us why. He tells us why in, verse, in, uh, in, in these verses where he says God is love. So that's the center. He answers the question why as to why it is that we are to love. It's principally because... God is love. Now with that bit of con now with that lot of context uh, in mind, let's read uh, God's word beginning in 1 John chapter 4 verse 1 and we'll read to verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. 
And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. As here ends the reading of God's word, let's pray and ask his blessing. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, I pray, dear Lord, that as we unpack your word tonight, that we will hear your voice, the voice of the Good Shepherd. And what we have not, you will give us. What we are not, you will make us. And we pray all of these things in Christ's dear name. Amen. I want to take you back uh, in the not-so-distant past into the year of 2015. It seems like uh, a lot has happened since then, and, and indeed a lot has happened, particularly with what happened in 2015, particularly in June of 2015. This was right before I was going into my senior year of high school when what happened at that time was the Supreme Court rendered its famous or perhaps infamous decision to formally recognize a so-called gay marriage in this land as recognizing it as a constitutional right. And a lot has changed since then. A lot has changed since then as it relates to that question of, of uh, homosexuality and gay marriage. And one of the things, one of the constants that has been uh, in that, from that movement even to today are, is, is almost perfectly pictured on some of the picket signs that I used to see when I was, uh, when I would be, see it on Facebook or TV or whatever. And it's the phrase, love is love. Now, uh, I didn't know what it meant then. I don't know what it means now. And I don't think in five years I'll know what it means then. But it does at least remind us something about what I think they're trying, or what I think is the effect, actually, of what that phrase means of love is love. Is that it's saying that what, what the, you know, as the Bible talks about it, it talks about love all the time, and it always roots it in the Lord himself. I mean, in fact, in this passage today, it says God is love. They're rooting, it's as if it's rooting an emotion in an emotion. It's like it's just hanging in the air. It's just whatever you want. It's just however you want to express it uh, as it relates to yourself. It has no objective meaning, but mean, has meaning only with respect to the persons who are exhibiting it. Now the reality of the situation is, though, is that we know from this text, at least, that love is a lot more than just simply saying love is love. In fact, it has objective, real Grounds, and it has it in the triune God of Scripture because it says God is love. It's not just hanging in the air. It's actually real. He exhibits it in time and in space in His Son, Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that. 
because in large part, in large part, if for no other reason, then one of the reasons why love may be distorted in this extreme example, but perhaps even among the Christian church, is because we often forget this, that very thing, that God is love. He's the perfection, per perfect uh, exhibitor of love because he is love. And not only that, it, so far as we don't exhibit it perfectly, we have the right model, we have the right uh, person showing that to us in Jesus Christ because God, as well the Father, as well as Christ the Son, is love. It's rooted in a person. It's rooted in his work. And it is rooted in the, in the gospel as it's exhibited to us because at the heart of the gospel is the love of God. Now, by way of context, again, just to remind you, this is the third time that he has talked about this question of love. He's dealt with it in chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. He dealt with it in uh, chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. And he tells us why it is that we are to love one another. Why must I love the light of God? Why must I love the brethren? And the resounding answer is the fact because, as we've said, God is love. And as we unpack this passage here in verse 7 to 12, one of the, th the thing that John is trying to illumine for us in this passage, and, and to illuminate very clearly, is that we show that God is love by loving one another as he loved us. We show that God is love by loving one another as he loved us. We're going to unpack that idea in three ways. First of all, as it relates to uh, the, the, where love comes from, that God is love. Love is from God in, verses four, in chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. Secondly, we'll see how love is shown by God in verses 9 to 10. And then third of all, we'll see love worked out in us in chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. So we'll see love is from God, shown by God, and worked out in us in these, in these section of verses. So let's look at it here again in verses uh, 7 to 8. Beloved, let us love one another. Now, this is a, the, the way John opens this up is, is with a term of endearment of beloved. He, he opens uh, many new sections or many frequent, new frequent sections in 1 John with those sorts of terms of endearment. It's either beloved or little children or children or, or anything like that. And one of the things that John is trying to is doing here and using that term is to remind them of their status as being beloved children of God and certainly of being beloved by John himself. Remember, he's dealing he's probably writing this this epistle as an older man and he's writing it to new Christians. He's writing it probably to Christians who've not been believers for very long and at least in so far as they have, they have they, they need to be reminded of the fact that they do have, uh, can have, do have salvation. That they can have assurance of salvation. And when he gives us this, this question of, beloved, uh, let us love one another, this is focusing us here on, uh, as a command. Saying, let us love one another is a command that, that flows throughout the entirety of this section, not just stopping at verse 12, but even goes through to the end of the chapter. So that this section to, to, that John is writing, let us love one another, is going to carry itself through for the remainder of the passage. 
And he tells us not only that are we beloved by God, that we are to love one another. He reminds us what is the reason why we are to love one another. For love is from God and whoever loves God has been born of God. By saying that love is from God, he's saying that it has its origination from God. It has its beginning in God. In fact, there's never been a time in which God has not loved. I mean, he's, he's perfect, he's eternal, so he is just that expression of love. And insofar as we exhibit the love of God, we are exhibiting it as ones who have been born of God. John has considered that time and again throughout, the, throughout uh, 1 John. He's reminded them in chapter 2, for example, that they are children of God, that they have his very nature, that they have the spirit of God dwelling in them. And that whoever exhibits this love, he says in verse 7, has been born of God and knows God. They know him perfectly. They know him intimately. And so even as he's giving them this directive to love one another, it is ultimately again rooted in the love of God. Now, before we move on, one of the thing, one of the biggest applications that I want us to, to learn from this passage right here, right now, is comes at the center of the fact that this is still a directive. In fact, in uh, in an earlier passage, I don't remember which. Uh, actually, it's in uh, verse twenty three of First John chapter four. He says, "And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, and that we love one another just as he commanded us." Those are two commandments that John gives in. In chapter 3, verse 23, to which he says that he brings back here as again as further directives for the Christian church. And you know, when we hear that the Lord, you know, telling us what to do, as it were, one of the things that we have to learn from this text early is that we have to hear the love of God in it. Because there are a lot of times in the Bible where, and from the Bible, from the pulpit, where the Lord gives us rebuke and for correction and for training, not even in directing us to love one another, but even for rebuking where we don't, correction where we don't, we have to hear the love of God in it. We have to hear the love of God in it because at the center, the very heart of the gospel is the love of God. I mean, we can't miss that. And because, and the reason why we even, I even say that or even bring it up at this point is simply because whenever we are, we are hearing that we're being told to do something or that we're being instructed to do something, our natural inclination is, guards up, I don't want to listen. Because I, or at least I don't want to do it. I don't see how this is for my good. But what John is trying to drive home here to this point is that even when that happens, we have to see that the Lord is trying to do this for our good. We have to hear the love of God in the commands that he gives. Because he because we have been born of God, because we know God, he's giving us these things to encourage us in all holiness and righteousness that we may dwell in union and communion with him. And the reason he gives us directives at all is because he loves us. And the only reason why we're enabled to hear and follow and obey is because out of his love he has made us able to do just that. So that's, one of the, so that's one of the things that we can, we can probably draw here from this passage in verse 7. But not only does this, show who is from, does this love show who is from God, it also teaches us uh, who is not of God. Look at verse 8, for example. Anyone who does not love 
does not know God because God is love. So because God is love, there is this there is this note here that insofar as we do or don't exhibit the love of God determines whether we have been born of God or have not been born of God. John has put has put this starkly um, by way of division as how you know who are the children of God and how you know that they aren't. And the test, one at least one of the social tests, is loving one another because God is love. It's as if we're going to. It's as if he's saying that you know if we're going to claim that we're we are born of God but hate our brethren. How can we say? That the love of God is in us. Anticipates a negative question, or at least a negative answer, because John would say, at least from that passage, as he said earlier, the answer to that is you can't claim that. And so insofar as we say that, you know, I, I, I am born of God, I know God, but don't love the brethren or love other children of God, even as he does in his son, we can't, there's, there's no area in John's mind by which we can say we are children of God and know Him, Because God is love. He says that in verse 8. And it's one of the biggest, or it's one of the, the, the biggest statements, the clearest statements of how we speak about God in relation to His attributes. We, we talk a lot about, uh, at least at the seminary, uh, about the attributes of God. What Things we can say about God that he has that we don't. Or those attributes of God which he has that we also share. Love being one of them. I mean, there's a sense in which we, we do share some of God's attributes. I mean, God is omniscient and we're not. But there is a sense in which we know things. So we can at least claim some of the, some of the knowledge there. Even though God is perfectly all-knowing and completely all-knowing. But we also exhibit love because God, because God is love. As God's children, we <laughs> exhibit this love. But we aren't love. We exhibit it. And we exhibit it imperfectly. But what John is saying here is that not only does God exhibit it perfectly, he exhibits it perfectly because that is part of his very essence. That's, part of, that's just who he is. It would be wrong to say love is God because it would put an emotion, something that to some extent is subjective, ethereal, is somehow defining God. No, love has its root in God who perfectly exhibits it. And he exhibits it perfectly in his Son. God is love. It's not much really to... Difficult, perhaps even impossible for us to wrap our minds around it perfectly. Because this is who God is. But a natural question would come to us even now as we consider the justice of God or the wrath of God. We say that God is just, but sometimes when we say that God is just, does that not also mean that he has to be harsh sometimes? Oh, I mean, he exhibits his wrath on sinners who one day when they are raised up at the last day will be condemned to hell. But he's still exhibiting love in that as well. Because sin is punished as equally as it's true that his people, people's enemies are vanquished. 
And His Son is the one who does it perfectly. God is love. Even when He's executing justice, God is love. Why are we pressing this home so much that God is love? It's because, as I said at the beginning, it is one of the hardest things for Christians to do. Again, this is the third time in which John has addressed this particular issue in this epistle. He deals with it so much, he talks about it so much, because it's the hardest thing for you and I to do. Because there, is all, there are always going to be times in your life and in the church where someone says something that really gets under my skin and I really just would rather let it go and not deal with it and as someone once told me, burn bridges. I mean, that's sometimes where we like to go. But that's not the character of God because if God burned bridges with us, we would all be hopeless. And he's saying when we say love one another, don't do that. Do this instead. Forgive. Love them as I have loved you. Even the hardest ones to love. Even the hardest ones to forgive. Even the hardest ones to have mercy on. And we can pray for the grace to do that. But we need to do it all the same. And he gives us the ability to do it insofar as we ask him. And we're able to do that because love is from God and God is love. And that's the first idea. That, uh, that love is from God in verses 7 to 8. But look at the second idea in verses 9 to 10. Love shown by God. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. Uh, that God sent his only son into the world. So that we might live through him. Now John this John has done this before. Where he uses the, the languages of, of in this. He's moving us forward into the narrative, as it were, to say uh, exactly what it is the subject that he's talking about. So in this, the love of God was made manifest, or rather it was made clear, in a, or it was made apparent in a way it wasn't before. And he made it manifest among us. When I read that and as I was studying it, it, it almost took me back to, to, to John chapter 1 verse 4. Where it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among who? He dwelt among us. Uh, the love of God is exhibited among us. Even though it's not really quite the same idea. And it's not the same idea in large part because you know, the language there is, uh, is of Christ's first coming as, as a man. This one here does so in a similar way, but has more... Again, that idea of God exhibiting his love in that he sent his son. In this, uh, or at least in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God the Father sent Jesus Christ into this world to dwell among us, to be among us. That in him we might have life and life abundantly. That we might live through him. You know, Jesus says in the Gospels that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. I am the door. And the only way to the Father is what? Through him. We have life 
through Christ. We have life through Christ because when the Father, when the Father sent Christ into the world to die for you and me, He sent Him into the world that, we, that even as He died for us, we might live through Him. And that the love of God, the justice of God, perfectly meet in Him, that we may have life and life abundantly in Him. He is the way, He is the truth, He is the life. And He's the only way in which we may have that life. How does that mean then that in this is the love of God? Because the love of God is in this. We didn't deserve it. If what Paul says is true in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3, that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins and fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, following after the prince of the power of the air, we would have never come to it. We would have never come to Christ. And in fact, later in this passage, it'll use the uh, John will use the language, we love him because he first loved us. He first loved us. He loved us. That's really the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel cannot be missing without the love of God for you and for me. In that he sent, first of all, sent his son. Even while we were sinners, he sent his son to do what he says here in verse 10, to be the propitiation for our sins. He, said, he gives us two ideas. In this, the love of God was made manifest and that he sent his son. In this, uh, the love of God is made clear, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What's that idea of word propitiation mean? Um, a little while ago, and we went through the through First John chapter two verses one to two, which is where he actually uses this word propitiation. Before he he puts it here in chapter two verse one, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And look what he says in verse two. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the first, that was the first time, and this is the second time in which he's used this idea. And it takes us back to the Old Testament idea of the uh, Old Testament sacrifices on, like, say, the Day of Atonement, for example. And what were these sacrifices supposed to do? It two, two functions. On the one hand, when the lamb was slain, we would put our hands and so communicate our sin on the lamb. And when it went up in flames, it signified first the wrath of God being satisfied for our sin. But it also, in going away, signified and being thrown out of the camp, the ashes thrown out of the camp, signified also that our sins had been forgiven and had been removed from outside the camp, from inside the camp. It had, twofold, it had a twofold idea. God's wrath satisfied on the one hand, and our sins forgiven and wiped away and thrown out of the community on the other hand. It had both of these ideas of wrath satisfied and sins forgiven. And that's what Jesus Christ came into the world to do. And this is love. God is love. Love is from God in that we see that perfectly in Christ and Him being sent 
to die for you and for me, to satisfy God's wrath and to forgive and to to purchase the forgiveness of our sins, the redemption of our whole selves uh, from our sin. It's not that we love God. Because again I say, if what Paul says in Ephesians 2 is true, we would have never come to Him. But He came. He was sent. And He died. And that, again, gets us to the heart of the Gospel. It gets us to why Christ was given and sent for us to begin with. I mean, why is it that we give gifts to our kids and our grandchildren anyway? Uh, it's because we love them. We want them to delight in that relationship that we have with them. This is a, a showing of our love. God shows His love perfectly when He sent His Son. And this is a passage here in chapter 4 which I would say is similarly dealt with in, in one way in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 to, 1 to 2. For Christians who are most worried about whether or not God does indeed love them. Because every Christian at some point in their lives, be it because they've committed some terrible sin, egregious sin, or they're going through some sort of uh, physical or mental or spiritual ailment, whatever it might be, and we, we, we go through those things in our lives and we begin to ask ourselves the question, does God love me? And this is love that he sent his son. If God is love, in this is love that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the resounding answer to that question, does God love me? Yes, he does. You, we can't ask ourselves the question... Uh, there, there's at some level when we ask the question, we can't give a negative answer to it in this way. We can say, have I finally done it? Have I finally blown it? Has my ailment, has my sin finally caught up with me to a place where God can finally say, well, you blew it. That's it for you. No more lifelines for you. That's not how he exhibits it. That's not how he exhibits it. Scripture in other places says how the sacrifice, this propitiatory sacrifice that Christ performed, did on the cross was a once for all sacrifice so that through him we may have boldness to come before his throne of grace to find grace and mercy and help in our time of need. <coughs> In our time of need. And how often are you needy? All the time. How many times do you need the Lord's help? Every single day. So does the Lord stop loving you because you need Him? Or you finally messed up and you think, maybe I've blown it? That's not what is in view here in John. And this is love that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, for your sins. And he doesn't stop loving his children. Now there's a third thing here in this text as well. Not only that love is from God or that it's shown by God, 
but in verses 11 to 12 that his love worked out in us. He again marks it off by that other term of endearment where he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's a conditional statement, if God so loved us, presuming the truth of the statement as it were. If God so loved us in this way, and we know that he did, we also ought to love one another as well. That language there, as you see it in verse 11, we also ought to love one another, has uh, the idea of obligation to it. It's, it's as if he's saying, you know, you're obligated to love one another. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if your parents ever said this to you growing up. I'm sure that they did. You get to pick your friends, but you don't get to pick your family. Has anybody ever heard that? Yeah. Uh, well, you can't pick your spiritual family either. Paul says in another place we have to we, we must bear one another, we are to bear one another's burdens. We are to love one another, even those who might we might consider most difficult to love because for whatever reason, the most difficult to forgive for whatever reason. As God's children interacting with God's children, we ought also to love one another. And that's through dissension. That's through disagreement. That's through where they say or do something that so makes you mad that you could just want to tell them, tell them something. You also ought to love one another because at the heart of love, again, is the sacrifice. Is sacrifice. The sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ. It's self-denial. Giving oneself over. And it's very difficult to love who the Lord tells us to love, isn't it? What is he, who does he tell us to love? Our neighbors as ourselves. And as the and in his in, in that epistle where the who I don't remember who he was talking Jesus was talking to, but they say, Well, who is my ask the question, who's my neighbor? And he gives the Samaritan parable. His point being that everybody's your neighbor, be it your brothers and sisters in Christ, or those whom you may even consider enemies. And the greatest thing that we in the Christian life can do is learn what it is to love our neighbor as ourself. And we continue to grow in that. But it's the hardest lesson to learn. But he tells us, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And he works that in us by the Spirit. He works that in us by his Holy Spirit. Because we, we can see that to some to a high degree in chapter 12, or verse 12 rather, of chapter 4, where he says, And no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected. In us. Now, let's see that idea here in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. Now, your, your thinking caps have got to come on and think, okay, well, has there ever been a time where people have seen something of God? Think about it. Did Adam and Eve not see God? Well, they walked in the garden with him. They didn't see him fully as he is, perhaps, or maybe they did. I don't know. I wasn't there. Or what about Moses in the burning bush? 
Uh, that, that was God. Well, well, it was a burning bush, so it wasn't God. And even when Moses asked, can I see you? Moses, or God tells Moses, no, you can't. Because no one can see my glory and live. So no, Moses did not see God, even though by the radiance of his face, some said it, it, it's as if he had. But he didn't. Well, what about when, uh, what about the angel of the Lord uh, that Jacob wrestled? No, probably not. Well, what about Jesus? Well, in the fullness of deity, the fullness of God dwelt in Christ, yes. But we didn't see him in his glory. We didn't see him as he is now presently in glory. And even now, even if we wanted to use that, that idea of the, the apostles, the disciples, John, at least seeing Jesus... Um, to say, well, some had seen God. I still don't think that it is, but even if we want to, John's audience hasn't seen it. And there's only, and we haven't seen Jesus either. We haven't seen God either. Even though, as John says in another place in this epistle, we will one day see him as he is. That will happen. But if we're going to say that we are Christians, if we're going to say that we are believers, if we're going to say we know God and we are born of God, for a group of people that have never seen him, for a world, honestly, that has never seen him, how is it then that we can say, or how, or how is it that we exhibit the work of Christ in us and present him Fully to the world. No one's seen him. People walk by, by sight a lot of the time. It's like, I, I'll, if I can see it, I'll believe it. Because Jesus is not on this earth now, how can we show the world the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ? Because no one has seen him. Well, he answers that question if we love one another. If we love one another. That's how. God abides in us. How does He abide in us? He abides in us by His Spirit. And what's the evidence of the Spirit in the lives of believers but how we love one another? And that love is perfected in us. Now, He's not saying here in verse 12 that we will be made perfect. But that God's perfect love in us is presently perfected and being exhibited in the church of Christ. So, what does that mean then? Well, it means this. The final apologetic of the Christian church in our evangelism, in our witness to the world... Is how we love one another. You know, we talk a lot about our God is love. God is love. He's loving. He's gracious. He's kind. He sent His Son into the world that we may have life and life abundantly. But I can say this that has been said before 
that some, some of the reasons why people do believe or don't believe in the gospel ultimately has, is relatively, intellectual issues is relatively insignificant. People can have their arguments against the gospel for a number of reasons, but intellectual reasons are relatively insignificant. The most significant thing that drives unbelievers away is where there is a divisive church. And sadly, there are a lot of churches like that. It repels people because they say, love is not among them. God is not among them. How can they say that God is love if they're always fighting and quarreling and hating one another? But when people see you and when they see me, what should they see? The love of Christ and how we live and how we love among one another. Because we're exhibiting the love of God as it was also shown to us in Christ. Outdoing one another in good, as Paul says in Galatians. Let's outdo one another in good. Let us love one another. Because where, as he says, faith, hope, and love abide, what does he say the greatest of these are? Love. And love never ends. Because God is love. And in this love, he sent his son. And so we also ought to love one another. So we saw at the beginning, that's one of the things that the uh, sign, the phrase, love is love, can never really ever understand. Because that kind of love is selfish and self-fulfilling. But God's love is giving, sacrificial, exhibited perfectly in His Son. And we do need to use words when we witness, but our lives should also be consistent with what we say. We say that God is love, we also ought to love one another and love the world enough to speak of what glorious things of Him are spoken. It's a wonderful gospel that when you look out into the world and you see people, we shouldn't sit back and say things like, look at them, as much as we should look up and say, Lord, why me? But in, when we see that, why me, we can hear Paul's words that he loved us before the foundation of the world to be conformed to the image of his son. It's free grace. And we offer and extend that grace to others, to ourselves, to each other, and to the world as we preach that gospel of free grace. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word that your gospel of grace be known and made manifest among us. I pray that as we live that we may love one another. Love is from you. You are love. Help us, I pray, O oh Lord, to exhibit that 
by the help of your Spirit. Father, I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.